Come, Holy Spirit, fill and use my words and our thoughts and hearts, that your word only may be spoken and your word only may be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Please receive. It's the evening of Passover, and the disciples are enjoying the Passover supper with their rabbi, Jesus. It's been an exciting few days. On their way to Jerusalem, they traveled to the village of Bethany, where Jesus raised from the dead his friend Lazarus, who'd been dead and buried for three days. Who could imagine such a thing? Sure, there were rumors that the chief priests and Pharisees were so disturbed by that miracle that they'd resolved to kill not only Jesus, but also Lazarus, because it was on Lazarus' testimony that so many of the Jews were leaving to follow Jesus. But then there was that triumphal entry into Jerusalem where all the crowds who had seen Lazarus raised or heard about it threw their branches before Jesus as he rode into town on a donkey, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Wow, it had been exhilarating being part of that. And now they, the select 12, were spending a special evening with Jesus all to themselves. Good wine, good food, good bread, all in close company with the Messiah. What could be better? Jesus, however, is in a much more somber mood. He knows what his disciples do not know. As we read from the Gospel of John, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. It's Jesus' last evening to spend with these disciples whom he loves so dearly and in whom he has invested so much. As they begin their supper, the disciples notice Jesus getting up from the supper couches and, and removing his cloak, his, his outer garments. They watch as he picks up a basin, fills it with water, and then picks up a long linen towel, tying it around his waist. He then moves with the basin and the towel from disciple to disciple, kneeling before them to wash their feet with the water and wiping them dry with the long end of the towel that he's wrapped around his waist. This was not something that they were expecting. In fact, it was pretty shocking. Foot washing was customary at a dinner party where there were servants, but it was a task delegated to the lowliest of them. The reason for that was simple. Unlike today, common people did not wear full shoes, nor were they walking on clean sidewalks or paths. No, this was a time when mud, discarded rotten food, sewage, and all kinds of disgusting substances might be encountered as the average person traversed the area, wearing simple, open sandals. In fact, it was such a disgusting job that there was a rabbinic regulation saying it was off limits for a rabbi to require his disciples to wash his feet. I could just imagine the shocked looks, the murmured 
questions the disciples begin to share with each other as Jesus starts to wash their feet. What is he doing? This isn't right. It's the ever impetuous Peter, though, who says what everyone else is thinking. Lord, do you mean to wash my feet? Jesus replies to him, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here. It's okay, Peter. I know you don't understand right now, but you will later. But Peter can't let it go. Horrified that his beloved rabbi, whom he's come to recognize as the Messiah, the Son of God, whom he honors above all else, kneels there with a basin of water and a towel like a lowly servant about to wash his feet, Peter exclaims, no, absolutely not. You are not going to wash my feet. Jesus answers patiently but firmly, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Peter, never known to speak or act in moderation, swings to the other extreme, well, in that case, he exclaims, I'm all in. Don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head, too. I can just imagine a slight smile crossing Jesus' face at Peter's exuberance. Jesus' reply is profound. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, for he is otherwise completely clean. And then the sorrow in Jesus' eyes as he continues, and you are clean, but not every one of you. John, writing of course in hindsight, tells us that Jesus was referring to Judas, whom he knew would soon betray him. Although it would not become clear to his followers until sometime after the resurrection, Jesus had just enacted through an everyday event the significance of his life on earth. I think the Apostle Paul must have had this event in the back of his mind, namely of Jesus stripping off his outer garments, taking a towel, tying it around his waist, and beginning to wash his disciples' feet when Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Here, at his last supper with his disciples, Jesus does this quite literally, divesting himself of his robe, of his rights of privilege. When Jesus tells Peter that if Peter does not submit to Jesus' washing, he will not have any part of him, Peter, of course, simply takes it literally. What we can recognize from the other side of the resurrection is that Jesus was referring more significantly to the truth that Peter and all of us who would come after him must submit to being washed clean by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross if we want to share an eternal life with him. And by saying that, that once someone has bathed, as they would have all done before they came to the Passover supper, once someone has bathed, only their feet need to be washed. We understand the further truth that if we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and truly accepted Jesus as our Savior, we do not need to be re-redeemed every time we sin. What we most certainly do need to do 
is to continue to bring our muddied souls to Jesus in repentance and humbly allow him to cleanse us of those sins. Sadly, as was the case with Judas, if we've not first submitted to Jesus by confessing him as our Lord and receiving the benefits of the cross, all the foot washing in the world is not going to help. As Jesus says, but not all of you are clean. It's always struck me that both Judas and Peter would deny Jesus the Messiah that night. Yet while Judas kills himself in despair and passes into darkness, Peter repents and was beautifully reconciled with Jesus, going on to become the recognized leader of the 12 apostles and a great saint of the church. There was one simple difference between Judas and Peter. Peter accepted Jesus as his Lord and his God. Judas did not. Returning to this passage, note that Jesus did not simply wash the disciples' feet and leave it at that. No, like the excellent teacher and rabbi who he was, Jesus explains clearly to the disciples his reasons for what he is doing. In chapter 13, verse 15, he says, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Notice that Jesus says this is an example, a model of how they are to be with each other. As you heard just a few minutes ago, one of the traditional names for, for this day in Holy Week is Maundy Thursday. And Maundy comes from mandatum, the Latin translation of the word commandment, used in verse 34, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Now that commandment is not to wash feet per se. The commandment, as Jesus goes on to say, is that you love one another, not just any old way, but love one another just as I have loved you. So you also are to love one another. Just as Jesus set aside his stature, his rights, his prestige, and positioned himself as a servant in relation to the disciples, so we followers of Jesus are to relate to each other. Jesus knows that this mutual service and submission does not come easily or naturally to us human beings. Our natural unredeemed desire is to elevate ourselves above others and to enjoy the adulation and even perhaps the service of others. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, relate the story of how shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples get into an argument as to which of them would be considered the greatest disciple. Jesus, knowing what they're saying, tells them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. True humility is not a characteristic that comes to us naturally. No, we have to make a conscious and deliberate effort at it. We have to exercise intentional self-discipline. And really, there's no natural reasons to do so. Our natural instinct is to position ourselves on top, king of the mountain. Have you ever met a young child who is naturally humble and prefers serving to being served? I didn't think so. Neither have I. No, parents and teachers and moral cultures have to instill the value of humility and of serving into us. Jesus is teaching and demonstrating a love that puts the other person first. In chapter 15, a little bit later in John's gospel, Jesus repeats this command to love one another. This time he's even more clear that loving one another means dying to self. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Giving up our life refers not only to the act of dying in the physical, as Jesus did for us, and as most of the disciples would ultimately do, but also the daily practice of dying to self. What was it about Jesus that inclined him to, to take off his robes, pick up a towel and a basin, and proceed to carry out that most menial and filthy task of washing his disciples' feet? The answer is in one of my favorite verses in John's Gospel. It appears right at the beginning of the account we just read. Chapter 13, verse 3 tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and going back to God, rose from supper and began to wash the disciples' feet. We hear a lot of talk today about the quest for self-identity with the highest value being placed on knowing and living out one's true identity. When presented from a worldly point of view, that entire conversation is about personal ego satisfaction and quite often at the expense of others. However, like many things on this earth that have become corrupted, there is a godly truth underneath all the ungodly grime that has accumulated on top of it. Jesus had no hesitancy in humbling himself, whether to wash feet or to suffer the most shameful form of execution in his day, death on the cross. And one key reason for that is that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew where he was from, and he knew where he was going. He knew what he was here to do. Nothing anyone could say or do to him on earth could ever change that. 
The need for approval or affirmation from others never entered the picture. In our fallen human nature, we look to others in this world to tell us who we are and why we're here and, and whether we have value. We have a need to be recognized and affirmed. That's why it's so painful when we feel like we've been disrespected or dishonored, ignored, neglected, unseen, unappreciated. It's why it makes us feel so good when we're treated as someone important, given honors or privileges, or when others speak highly of us. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in themselves. That truth I was talking about, the godly truth underneath it, is that our Father in heaven wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know we have value. He wants us to be treated honorably as the image bearers of God whom we are. So he created us with a natural need to know that we're valuable and we're created for a purpose. The problem concerns the source to which we are looking for that affirmation. When we begin seeking our value and our sense of worth and purpose from the world, we become captive to the world's opinion of us and to manipulation by ungodly forces. Jesus, knowing who he was, where he came from, and where he was going to, had no problem assuming the position of a servant though he was the king of kings and lord of lords. He was able to exercise humility, service, and perfect love of others, in part because he wasn't looking for others for his identity or his value. If we are to obey Jesus' commandment to love one another as he has loved us, we need to let go of our desire for earthly affirmation and identity and instead receive our true identity, our true worth, our true destiny from our Father in heaven, just as Jesus did. When we do so, we'll be in a position to fulfill Jesus' commandment to his followers that they demonstrate that same love to each other as he has demonstrated to us. One effect of that is that we will place our identity as redeemed sons and daughters of God and followers of Jesus Christ far above all other identities and allegiances. We live in a time of unprecedented social division to magnitude never seen before in our country. Families and friendships have grown, grown strained or have even broken off completely because of differing opinions over political parties and candidates, over whether this or that policy is best for our national security or our economy, over whether one mode of living is better than another, whether it's best for a parent to stay home or to work outside, so many different things. And let's not forget the long and sad history of the church for splitting and Christians for denigrating each other over non-essential matters of practice and theology, such as whether we should baptize infants or, or whether the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. 
Now those things are all worth discussing and seeking to understand through scripture, but they should not be the cause of broken relationships, of split churches, and of broken fellowship. Jesus must weep when he looks upon the divisions, hostility, and lack of love so prevalent in his church today. As we approach the observance of Jesus' death and resurrection, a little self-examination might be in order. I'm just going to share some questions with you for us to ask ourselves. And please don't think that I am simply asking these of you. Any questions that I come up with to ask others are because I sense the Holy Spirit asking me these same questions. Ask, how important is it to me and to my sense of well-being that others think highly of me? Have I left behind relationships and even communities, including prior churches, because of disputes over non-essentials or because I was offended in some way? When I have felt the need to move on from a Christian relationship or community, did I leave with love, honesty, and respect? Or did I leave with bitterness, resentment, and a readiness to tell anyone who would listen about the faults of that person or community or about the wrong that they had done to me? Do I secretly or publicly harbor the conviction that Christians who do not agree with me over non-essential matters of faith and conscience, such as politics or church practices, are not being faithful to Jesus in their Christian walk, and perhaps are not truly Christian at all? Am I willing to remove my outer garments of self-righteousness and public regard in order to humbly serve my fellow believers? Or am I elevating my right to be right and my desire for public acceptance above Jesus' commandment to love one another as I have loved you? Perhaps now and in the days to come would be a good time to come before the Lord in all humility as we ask him to show us where we have failed his commandment to love one another as he has loved us, to confess our faults, and to allow him to wash us clean. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for the gift of redemption. We thank you that we can come to you daily, even hourly, to be washed clean of all of the grime that we pick up in our daily lives. Turn our hearts towards you, Lord. Let us grow stronger in love for you and for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.